How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guest today is Vinod Kosla, a prominent investor in Silicon Valley and clean tech evangelist. What energy sectors are attracting smart money in today's market? What technologies on the horizon are potential game changers? Should we forecast our energy future or invent it? Mr. Kosla will present his views on forecasting and investing for about 30 minutes, and then we'll have a conversation, including questions from our live audience here in San Francisco. Now, please welcome venture capitalist Vinod Kosla. Good evening, and thank you, Greg. It's great to be here, and uh, I'll uh, talk about a number of things. As Greg said, I'm a big believer that you don't predict the future, you invent it. But before we do that, I'm going to talk to you about all the things that we shouldn't be doing. And most of all, we shouldn't be listening to experts, whether they're on cap and trade, whether they're on predictions of energy use in 2050, uh, or about the role of solar or wind or anything else. The main point I'll try and make is experts get in the way of innovation. Punditry is our biggest enemy of what can can't be done. I am very optimistic. I am certain we will see far more change than anybody imagined. And hopefully, uh, I'll convince you of the same. There's a few things I believe in. George Bernard Shaw said, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And most of these experts are too much of experts, too deeply engrossed in what they do, been at it too long, to be unreasonable about their forecasts. Martin Luther King, in a different context, said human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. There's no question about this. I see these guys every day. They walk into my office with unreasonable claims. And I'll talk about some of these very unreasonable claims today. But let's start with these experts. All the pundits who give talks like this, who come to the Commonwealth Club, who prognosticate, who the New York Times quotes, who are on CNBC. These are the experts. The president of the Royal Society, presumably one of the most uh, enlightened scientific minds on Earth, said, not that many years before the Wright brothers flew the first plane, that heavier-than-air flying machines were impossible. Western Union decided telephony had too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. Why? Because these guys are extrapolating the past. The New York Times said in 1936, it's an authoritative source, was back then too, and is just as authoritative today, a rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere less than a decade before the first V2 was flown. Of course, my own favorite, uh, we started Sun Microsystems uh, just before, uh, after the president of Digital Equipment Corporation said there's no reason for individuals to have a computer in their home. I sort of agree there is a reason to have 100 different computers. Even your washing machine has a computer about the size that Digital Equipment Corporation was shipping. But that's anecdotal. And some people say to me, let's get a little more rigorous. Let's look at it a little more deeply. 
I think this is the reason experts are wrong, and I'll come back to it. Faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving there's no need to, almost everyone gets busy on the proof. Now, let's see examples of this. My favorite is oil price forecasts. These are done by the Energy Information Administration. Um, in 1985, there was a five-year forecast that the price of oil in five years, that's by 1990, would be $34 a barrel. The actual price was $22, way off the mark. The 10-year forecast was supposed to be even or higher, $50. You see these forecasts every year. The actual price was $17. They didn't even get the direction of the change right, let alone undeterred. There was a five-year forecast in 1990 at $27. The actual price was $17. The 10-year forecast, oops, uh, can we turn this down a little bit? Um, the 10-year forecast, uh, maybe I'll move this down a little bit, it's too close, was for $46, and the actual oil price was 28 In 95, five-year forecast of 23 you, you get my point. So in these kinds of rapid changes happen, and you see these experts, and, and these are five-year forecasts and 10-year forecasts, predicting our energy future 30 and 40 years out. It's got to look ridiculous. Let's look at that a little more carefully. This is, again, the Energy Information Administration officially forecasting oil prices. In 2005, the forecast was for a change between 2006 and 2030, between 25 and 30 dollars. So over 25 years, we'd see a five dollar change. That year, we saw a range from 28 to 46. So the one year change was larger than what they had forecast for 30, 25 years. Undeterred, they made the same forecast in 2006. The next year, the same result. The prediction, very narrow range. The actual change, 45 to 62. More change again than forecast over 25 years. 27, 2007, same thing. 2008, the same thing. Interesting pattern. They had a belief system of how oil prices behaved. And the shape of their forecast didn't change. Despite being wrong that year, more wrong that year than the range they had forecast for 25 years. I submit this is because experts have belief systems and they bury these belief systems in these econometric models, which have nothing to do with the truth. It's got to do with sounding more authoritative. Of course, in 2009, the price range was so large, they had to change it. And the 2000 forecast just follows the 2009 example. My favorite is McKinsey. In 1980, they were asked to forecast the number of cell phones in the United States 20 years out. This was a study done for AT&T. They probably paid tens of millions of dollars for this study. And they forecast about 900,000 phones, just under a million. The actual number of phones in the year 2000 was 109 million. <laughs> and this is how seriously you should take every forecast you hear about our energy future. Now, it's interesting to see why this, mis uh, you know, I wanted to examine this further and say, why did this happen? After spending tens of millions of dollars, why were they off by 10,000% or more? The answer was the 1980s cell phone looked like the sewing machine mounted on the floorboard of your car. The year 2000 cell phone was smaller than the handset cord 
in the 1980s cell phone. This Motorola StarTech, all of you know. It was hard to imagine, and yes, cell phones did have handset cords back in 1980. But you, you see my point. If, I, if somebody had forecast the year 2000 phone, the Motorola StarTech, when you had this sewing machine mounted on the floorboard of your car, they would have called you a dreamer. Unreasonable, irrational. Technically speaking, more statistically, these models have given inputs that are precise but inaccurate. You know, the number is 16.22248 when the level of accuracy is plus or minus 5. Statistically, they have low standard deviation, high standard error for those of you who are statisticians. But most importantly, they input the measurable, but ignore the immeasurable. So when you do a forecast for the price, uh, for the penetration of wind into our markets, how can we imagine here today what a wind turbine in the year 2040 will look like? I've seen designs with no moving parts for a wind turbine. Now, whether they work or not, I can't tell you. I know it sounds incredible, but, but yes, they are out there. But one single thing. Can you store that wind power right in the turbine or around the turbine? May change the forecast by 10x. In that world, you don't try and forecast. You try and do something else, and you're better off Assuming you don't know, then pretending you know a number that you know is wrong. So, a more rigorous look at experts, even more rigorous than analyzing why these mistakes were made, was done by Professor Tetlock at UC Berkeley. He took hundreds of experts, over 80,000 expert forecasts, and over 20 years. This is a big sample over a long period of time and a lot of experts. Average accuracy, the same as darts throwing monkeys. <laughs> this is not casual. This is a rigorous study, and there is, in fact, a book called Expert Political Judgment by Professor Tetlock you can buy on Amazon. A little hard to read, but a wonderful book if you want to really believe experts. This, to me, is damning evidence in my pleading to you of why you should not listen to any expert. And he, Professor Tetlock says the same thing um, that uh, uh, our, our John Kenneth Galbraith said. Experts were much tougher in assessing the validity of information that undercut their theory than they were in credited, crediting information that supported it. Uh, the same thing is true of experts like weather forecasting. This is a favorite example. This was done over seven months, daily forecasts. One day out, weather forecasts across all the television stations in Kansas City. Not particularly changeable weather. One day out was 85% success rate. Seven days out, they had a 73% success rate. Now, that sounds impressive till you realize that if you just said no rain tomorrow, you'd be right 86% of the time. <laughs> so, hopefully having dissuaded you from listening to any experts, let's talk about the power of ideas in entrepreneurship. It's the power of ideas fueled by entrepreneurial energy, which is the salvation. NASA spent approximately $20 billion to get into space. The X Prize motivated an entrepreneur who spent less than $25 million to get into space, to win the X Prize. Every telecom giant almost died in the face of the Internet those flaky guys out in California. AT&T said they'd never adapt internet protocols in 1995-96. 
five years or ten, six years later, they were sold for a song. People forget AT&T is no more. In fact, their brand was bought and the company was bought by Singular. The Human Genome Project was this massive government project beaten by one man, Craig Venner. And of course, you, you can go on and on. So, look at the sources of innovation. Did Google, Facebook, and Twitter come from Fox, NBC, and CBS, or some lone young 23-year-old? Did Amazon beat out Walmart? One guy. First Solar beat out GE, BP Solar, Arco, Shell, everybody who was in the BP in the solar business. Cree beat out GE in lighting, when for GE and Philips, lighting was their brand. Same thing in DNA sequence. I can go on. I submit to you that if you're willing to try, if you're willing to allow ourselves to fail, we give ourselves the ability to succeed. It's the only thing we need to be little daring to challenge ourselves. Robert Kennedy said, only those who dare fail greatly can achieve greatly. My favorite is try and fail, but don't fail to try. You know, it's odd as an investor, sometimes somebody comes up with this great new battery idea, comes to me, one of my partners says, hey, this is exciting. And I'll sometimes say, hey, this has a 80% chance of working. Bring me something that has an 80% chance of failing. Why do I say that? Because when you have an 80% chance of succeeding, you're trying something incremental, something small. They always look at me funny because investors don't want to fail. I love the ideas that have a 90% probability of failure because then you're trying something worthwhile. And I tell my partners, don't, I'm not afraid to fail. I just don't want to succeed in a way that's not material. And there's a big difference between those two. So the willingness to fail gives us the freedom to succeed. That's about extrapolation of the past. But what life is really about is inventing the future. Give you an example. I hope many of you are familiar with the term black swans in the book, Black Swans, highly recommended reading, another hard book to read, but the world always assumed swans were white. Because nobody been to Australia. The day the first black swan was seen in Australia, the definition of a swan changed. After hundreds of years, it changed overnight. And let me give you an example I'll get to next. We want clean energy. There's a startup in Los Gatos says, clean energy doesn't mean renewable. It says coal is cleaner than solar. So that's a black swan, and I'll come back to that example. What's a black swan? A rare event, extreme impact, and retrospective, but not prospective predictability. So what if, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to move much faster. What if coal plants were clean, more driving meant less carbon, cement was carbon negative, the million years it took to make crude was happened in hours or seconds, I can go through a lot of what-ifs. Thing is, we're working on every single one of these. Calera didn't take carbon dioxide as a problem. They decided to make it into a feedstock. Once you take it as a feedstock and turn it into building materials like carbonates, like cement and sand and aggregate, it becomes twice as clean as solar. Using coal reduces mining by 80%, and details are on the Calera website, and it reduces the carbon footprint by twice as much as solar. 
here's a company that's turning biomass, wood chips, Houston City wood vice, into crude oil. And crude oil is something every oil company loves. So suddenly, it's an oil company-friendly biofuel. They're doing it exactly the way nature does it, except nature takes a few million years. They do it in actually about 0.6 seconds. This is a company that's making the internal combustion engine more efficient. If you can do a 50 to 60% improvement, and by the way, a Prius only does about 20 to 25% improvement, it becomes far greener than a hybrid. This is why all those environmental experts can be wrong. And by the way, the gentleman who's doing it designed a diesel engine called the Volkswagen TDI engine, which in 2009 beat out the Prius for the green car of the year. Sora is working, it's a company working on reducing electricity consumption of lighting by, by 80-90%. That would completely change electricity consumption. We're a company attempting to reduce electricity consumption of air conditioning by 75-80%. And there's others who are trying to make artificial leaves to store up energy. Professor at, um, um, Lewis, Nate, Nate Lewis at Caltech. All sorts of nanophenomena batteries. Low energy nuclear reactions. People tell me I'm crazy to put this up because it's uh, flaky. But these are all massive resource multipliers. There's lots of pieces, and I could list a hundred types of science and technology that could do all that. And so that's what we want to use, these black swans, to completely change every assumption the experts have. If coal was, in fact, cleaner than solar, then we already have the cleanest source. And we'd do a retrofit, and suddenly the world would change very, very quickly. Not in 50 years, not by 2050, but by 2020 or 2030. But we need to do it at relevant cost, relevant scale, and relevant adoption. And this is where the environmentalists really hurt us. They want to push uneconomic technologies. And even if we force San, Francisco's, San Franciscans because of regulation or because they love the environment like I do, to adapt it, the average person in Mississippi sure isn't going to adapt it, and definitely not the average person in India who can barely afford to even turn on the light. So. The criteria are important. We can't defy economic gravity. So do we have enough resources? That's the planet. That's how much area we'd need in the desert to provide all the world's solar electricity from solar. Can we provide renewable electricity? For sure assuming the coal doesn't work. And if you put transmission lines, you can get them to most parts of the world relatively easily, this clean, renewable electricity. People always say, hey, biofuels, not enough land. There's a billion acres of land that has been abandoned from agriculture, most of it in the 20th century, from poor agricultural techniques. If we adapted that land and good agronomic practices, we could recover this billion acres, replace most of the oil, improve the soil, improve the environment, um, and do more. Yet another billion acres? Winter cover crops. We grow 300 million acres of row crops in the US alone. That land is left open in the winter, mostly. If we grew crops during the winter, we would cut down on nitrogen runoff during the winter rains. We would reduce the need for right nitrogen in the summer. We would make the soil richer and feed our biomass needs. Just one little example. Of course, I gave you examples of SORA and HVAC 
reducing electricity. 80-90%. These are big numbers. Engines that improve efficiency by, uh, by 50% are like megabarrels of energy efficiency. These are all paths to black swan. There's only one thing we need to do. Take more shots and goal. It's unfortunate the Sharks had so many shots and goal and didn't win. Uh, hopefully they will tonight. Uh, but we do need to make, take more technical shots and goal. And in fact, this is the only thing we really need to do. Technology does expand the art of the possible, and today's unimaginable is tomorrow's conventional wisdom. Nobody imagined Twitter two years ago. Conventional wisdom. You know, I gave a talk at the incoming class at Stanford uh, University, and all these fresh-eyed freshmen didn't realize that five years ago when they were going into high school, Facebook practically didn't exist. Most of them hadn't heard about it. There's 400 million people on Facebook. Google practically didn't exist 10 years ago. The world does change all the time, and we forget how fast what we think is conventional wisdom didn't exist. That is why I say to predict the future, we need to invent it, not listen to experts. There's another thing we got to do. We got to stop paying attention. The environmentalists have done a great job of raising the visibility of the problem. No other constituency could have done as good a job. But they're terrible at telling you how to solve it. I love these books, The Lazy Environmentalists, 365 Days to green, Live Green, Global Warming Survival Handbook. All these things, these are completely irrelevant. Like I said in the, a little bit earlier, there's only a few problems. If we got rid of fossil oil and replaced it with renewable oil, if we made power generation carbon negative or carbon neutral, those two problems would solve 70% of the problem. Add cement and steel to it, and that's 80% of worldwide emissions. We solve those four, we are done. We can stop worrying about, as Cheryl Crow says, use only one sheet of toilet paper instead of two in the morning. <laughs> we don't solve those four problems. You can do all 2,000 books that have been published, every one of those things, and it won't matter. So let's realize what matters. Environments like to use less water during the shower. And it's sort of irrational. People use 100 to 200 liters of water for a shower or drinking. Growing one kg of wheat, 1,000 liters. One kg of beef, 15,000 liters. So if you want to be an environmentalist, become a vegetarian. Forget about the shower stuff. It's not material. My point is we spend too much time on things that don't matter things like eco-bikinis. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> and of course, there's people like Shell who talk about sustainable tar sands. You know, we got to get past this marketing, this selling, and deal with the reality. We need goals, not solutions. Electric cars. An electric car today 2020, 2030, 2050 is likely to be a coal-powered car in the U.S., in Europe, in India, and China, the only places that really matter because all of them are forecast to be 50% or more coal. Do we want coal-powered cars? And then I gave you this example of is coal cleaner than solar? Let's not make assumptions. Let's set the criteria. We want low-carbon electricity. Do we have a low-carbon electricity standard? No. Do we want biofuels or hybrids? Well, the chances of people in India, which is the fastest-growing market, supposed to grow by 5,000% over the next 30, 40 years. 
not a chance will buy hybrids because they are unaffordable. So biofuels is probably the right solution, but it doesn't matter. Let them compete in the marketplace. And let's define carbon emissions per mile driven. And let everybody compete to that standard. And by the way, I'm not counting out hybrids. I just don't think today's hybrids are viable or will spread massively. We'll ship a billion cars on this planet. The chances that a material number of them will be electric or hybrids or low carbon are very small if they're electric. So what's my answer? Hey, bring me the business plans that have a 90% probability of failure in developing a new battery technology. I want those Six Sigma outlier battery technologies, and it's the only kind of battery technology I want to invest in, because we need that radical change. In the interest of time, uh, I'm going to skip a few things and, and talk, you know, the issue is the real competition is things like $2,500 cars. So my pleading to you is there's lots of ways to change everything we think is wrong. But there's biofuels, there's 10 different ways to prove agriculture. You know, a good crop, when you see those expert, extra, experts extrapolate corn ethanol, completely irrelevant. That's like trying to extrapolate horse carriages to predict what happens in New York City 50 years out. We need to understand new things. If we do agriculture with polyculture, and we do it with perennials, Perennials have root systems that go 15 feet deep into the ground. Annuals have little roots. So you can actually grow crops and increase the carbon content of the soil with the right kinds of crops. If you do polyculture, you can build communities that feed itself, and so you eliminate the need for nitrogen. So what do we do? When we're developing biofuels technologies, I want to look at things that can take feedstock from polyculture cultivations, not from monoculture cultivations. So let me stop here in the interest of time. Uh, and uh, maybe we can go to our uh, session. Sure. Um, <clears throat> Our thanks to Vinod Kosley here at his comments here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Let's give Vinod a thank you for your comments. So, um, thank you for that excellent presentation, Vinod. A lot there to cover. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of brief questions, then we'll go to uh, questions from the audience. So if you'd like to start to line up behind the microphone over there, I invite you to, to do so. Uh, Vinod, you're clearly not a fan of, of conventional wisdom and forecasts. Who, you recently raised a billion dollar fund to invest in new technologies. Who do you look to? What sources of information do you trust for gaining a glimpse into the future? Well, that's a hard question. Because in, depending upon the topic, it's a different person. But there are people you think have good track records who um, can predict the black swans or predict the future. Um, Actually, I think people generally are not good at that, uh, including ourselves, by the way. Uh, what we can do is make educated guesses of what the probability of success is. Uh, what's the complexity of developing a technology or a new science idea? Um, it's a very hard thing. And you, know, you read about this in the press all the time. Hey, Coastal Ventures invested in this thing that failed. I don't really care about the failures. I only care about the successes. And, and that's really the key. In fact, when the press writes like stories like that, other investors get cautious because they don't want to fail. And it actually hurts the cause. Because we want more people taking more shots and go. 
And you've talked about making non-fiduciary types of investments, investments that it sounds like that you expect to fail. What does that mean? Well, I don't expect them to fail, but I don't mind them failing. Big difference. So we raised two funds. We raised a large fund, about a billion dollars, that's meant for regular venture capital. And then we raised a $300 million fund that I call our science experiments fund. Um, This afternoon, I was reviewing a battery technology that is so radical, the phenomena hasn't been tried before. I I would say uh, it it honestly probably has a 90% chance of failure. But that was okay, because that 10% chance of success would change automotive transportation. That's a shot worth taking. And if it's a 10% chance financially of making 100 times our money, that's also a shot worth taking. So whether you look at it socially or from an investment point of view, that's a shot well worth taking. The other nice thing is because people are generally afraid to fail, uh, they don't take those shots. There's much less competition for those. It's nice to play where there's less competition. How many of these bets and shots are dependent on a price on carbon? We didn't, didn't talk about that, mm-hmm. but does there need to be a price on carbon for these to be economic? Well, a price on carbon is a good idea. It'll accelerate this kind of experimentation. It'll accelerate the adoption of these technologies in the marketplace. But our investing strategy is, because we don't know whether there'll be a price on carbon, that all the technologies we invest in get to unsubsidize market competitiveness against their fossil competitors uh, within five to seven years of going in production. I'm actually convinced that five to seven years from now, oil will start to have a hard time competing at the margin. I've been on the record saying the oil price will be driven down by alternatives to oil, low-carbon alternatives to oil, whether it's biofuels or batteries or low-carbon electricity, where by 2030, the price of oil in 2006 dollars will probably be $30 a barrel. Is that a prediction? That's a prediction. (laughs) Okay, we'll be back here in 2030. Mark your calendars. Uh, Another policy question. Uh, California's put in place some policies to effectively put a price on carbon and and promote efficiency, these things you talk about. Uh, Do you think that's good for California's economy, good for jobs? Uh, I believe anything that encourages innovation is good for California's economy. Now, when you take a bill like AB32, there's plenty of good things about it and plenty of bad things. And the good comes with the bad, the big Ideas come with all kinds of special interests, all embedded in unusual ways. And frankly, even beyond the special interests, there's all kinds of unintended um, effects of of regulation. Um, Having said that, I do think AB32 is encouraging innovation. And because of AB32, directly or indirectly, we'll see 10 more Googles in California. And that'll be good for the economy. It'll be good for jobs in the state, probably in unpredictable ways, probably in black swan ways, but it will be good for the state. Vinod Kosla is a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. You're listening to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have a question from the audience. Hi, Vinod. Uh, my name is Sudeep Motipali Rao. I'm an engineer, and I'm totally uh, in sync with what you say. My personal motto is uh, create or else. Um, so I understand the innovation and invention. But from what I was hearing, from what you were saying, it seemed I got the impression that, that there's intrinsically not uh, some kind of a flaw in the way we humans have been going about, and that uh, if you notice that there is an entropy and the impacts have been felt in health and other ways, and, and it starts from a loss of integrity in terms of the way we were treating ourselves, So, yes, we can invent new technologies to solve some of these problems, but... uh, What's your question? Ah, good good point. Okay, let's get to it. It seems to me that the way things are going on, time is... It's evolved to a point, a complex system, whereby which a new... There's a new emergence. Uh, Some synthesis synthesis is happening where we're having to change. So, given that circumstance, why do we have to think that 
there is more technology to be invented. Rather, this is actually uh, nature and the technology forcing us to actually synthesize and become simpler. All right, thank and, you. So technology and, and humanity. Well, I, I think the thing to realize is human beings, by and large, act in their self-interest. They don't do things that they should do. They do things they feel like doing. For God's sake, we can't even keep our New Year's resolution on keeping our calorie intake down more than two weeks. That's true of 90% of people who make those resolutions or cigarette smoking or whatever their vice happens to be. Should and feel like are very different things. And we have to recognize that human beings do things they feel like, which is generally lazy. They do things that are in their self-interest, and that results in a complex set. Part of doing that, they create problems. Every problem, to me, is an opportunity for a technology solution. I'm a technology optimist, not just an optimist. And to me, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity, the more people then, in their own self-interest, try and solve that problem. And I think that's just the nature of evolution of society. Um, and, and frankly, people don't act till the problem gets big enough until they have a crisis. And Paul Romer at Stanford says, once there's a crisis, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. I completely agree. We are fast approaching a crisis and be a terrible thing to waste this crisis to really solve one set of problems and let us humans in our own interest create a different set of problems. Next question. Good evening. I'm hoping you can elaborate a little bit on your PV versus coal comparison, which is an interesting one. Particularly, I'm wondering whether there's any danger to comparing coal and its uh, constraints nowadays in efficiency and price that we're already very familiar with, with a future technology, a couple of technologies paired with coal uh, that have as yet to be proven cost and limitations in terms of scalability. And the other thing is, whether or not you think that solar, especially coupled with some new storage technology, might have a black swan moment of its own in its future, despite the fact that solar's been um, kicking around for 20 so years. So I'm glad you clarified that. I do expect we'll see black swans in solar and wind. In fact, most of our effort in wind and solar has been focused not on wind and solar, but on storage for wind and solar. You know, when the environmentalists push wind and solar, it's a bad idea. Because you can't say to a utility, I'll ship you power when the sun's shining or when the wind's blowing, and the rest of the time you're on your own. Right? That's when the governor calls the CEO of the utility and says, hey, we got a hot day. Why aren't you shipping power? Why do you have blackouts? Right? And so we have to be pragmatic. The answer to that is not more coal. It's better storage. And so that's what we are working on. Uh, the fact is, I'm not trying to say coal is better than solar. I'm saying our regulation should make assumptions on what is better and let entrepreneurs in all these areas compete. I have no question that 50 years from now, we won't need coal. There'll be cheaper power sources if we keep innovation going. There'll be low carbon sources that are cheaper than coal. But we got a lot of coal plants, and pretty unlikely that anything more than 20, 30% of the new power generated uh, being put in place in India or China is going to be anything uh, uh, is more than re renewable. So pragmatically, we need a solution for coal. In fact, coal may in the short term be the best one till we can have Bill Gates' terra-power nuclear reactor, which I'm glad he's working on. And so surprises can come from all sorts of places. Bill Gates' reactor actually uses waste uranium as a fuel. So it gets rid of the disposal problem and generates power. And one reactor, uh, you know, a few meters deep, can serve a population of 6 million people for 60 years. Now, whether that particular reactor works or not doesn't matter. Something like it will. So whether it's nuclear or solar or a radical new change in wind or wave power, I, I, we're investing in all those areas. You know, our last two or three investments were in wind and solar, not in coal. But my point is, we should treat them all equally and let them compete. Let's briefly clarify how coal can be carbon negative. So it's by capturing the emissions of coal? So Calera is a company that takes all the carbon dioxide that coal produces. 
Oh, by the way, all the mercury and the cadmium, chromium, and all the other nasty stuff that comes out of coal when you burn it. It turns it into carbonates, into basically cement and aggregate. When you use that, you've done two things. You've eliminated the carbon dioxide and the other nasties in coal, but you've also replaced the carbon dioxide you would have produced in making the cement you'd otherwise use. So because of that little trick, they not only use it, they turn it into something that would displace other sources of carbon production. Environmentalists call that life cycle carbon. You're now getting above 100%, maybe up to 150 or 200% reduction in carbon emissions. Uh, and that's the magic. This is the thesis behind innovation. Let's set our goals, not make assumptions on how people will come up with clever ideas. And every single time we make assumptions, somebody proves it wrong, some entrepreneur, some innovator, some technologist finds another way. Our guest at Climate One today is Vinod Koslin. Next question from the audience. Thank you. Let's assume for a moment that we've uh, settled on your 90% probability of failure technology. And what I'd like to do is ask a pedantic question based on your long experience. What are the most frequently occurring causes of failure beyond the technology that deal with the human beings that are trying to execute this? What do you worry about at night about those guys that you've selected to work on that technology? Uh, so I didn't fully hear the question, but... Uh, human failures. How do humans fail aside from technology? Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said earlier to the question the gentleman asked, the first question that was asked, humans act irrationally. Uh, Behavioral economics is an area I've been trying to study fairly intensively recently. Uh, highly recommend a couple of books like Josh Lerner's How We Decide or Predictably Irrational. We do irrational things. We do things in our self-interest. Sometimes we intend to be bad. Sometimes we don't, but still are bad. And there's all sorts of unintended consequences of all the good things we try and do. But Societies are complex systems. Uh, I'm actually a student of complex systems and did a sabbatical at the Santa Fe Institute studying complexity theory uh, about uh, eight or nine years ago. Um, as we evolve, we create pro we solve problems and we evolve, uh, evolve new problems. And, and this process is going to be a continual process. Maybe a continuous process, but definitely a continual process. I don't think we can predictably say we won't create any new problems. We just need to be more adaptable and more dynamic when we create a problem, we recognize it, recognize it early, and fix it. Next question. Hey, Vinod, um, I ran into some fusion researchers a few years ago that said that the success of fusion was really just a matter of money and nothing else. I'm kind of curious what your take on the promise of fusion is. Nuclear fusion. Um, nuclear is nuclear fusion is a matter of money but it's a lot of money and a lot of risk and probably some unintended consequences that we can't think of um, I don't believe we are at a stage where the best use of the next incremental dollar billion dollars or seven billion dollars is we are spending on the, on the uh, what, what's called warm fusion project, or hot fusion project, is the best use to reduce carbon on this planet. I believe it's too early to start on hot fusion power plants and reactors. Should we be doing research at Lawrence Berkeley Labs? Absolutely. Or Lawrence Livermore Labs? Absolutely. Should we be spending $7 billion on it? The question you really have to ask is there a better use for that $7 billion that might have a higher probability outcome? Where would you put that $7 billion? I'd, I'd spend it on a thousand seven million dollars projects because that's where you want to go with more shots and goal. Spread it all over the playing field. I, I actually think the new ARPA-E program is doing a great job of taking the high-risk projects, funding them, the university researchers with crazy ideas. That's where I'd put more money. ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Project, yeah. the Pentagon? Yeah. Okay. There was a project uh, called DARPA, Defense Advanced Research. Uh, Projects Agency? Uh, Projects mm -hmm. Agency. Um, 
and it was very successful in creating new technologies. Um, there's a similar project in the Department of Energy now called ARPA-E uh, that's doing a lot of interesting experimental stuff, and I think that's one of the best uses of DOE stimulus funds I've seen. Most of the larger uses, by the way, are relatively poor uses. When DOE gives a billion dollars to A123, what happens? One, it can go public. Two, when it goes public, it starts really being innovative because they have to be predictable. And three, it, it discourages further investments uh, in, say, engine efficiency, which might have much higher payback. And so you get all kinds of, uh, but, but the smaller multiple shots and goal is, is a very good idea. And that's the way you deploy your capital? Lots that's of little... how I would deploy my capital. Next question, please. I mean, what are your thoughts on reverse polymerization to convert waste plastics into gasoline? In U.S. alone, we create around 30, billion, no, 30 million tons of waste plastics per year. In, I think it's the Pacific Ocean, there is a huge area of waste plastics the size of Texas. So what are your thoughts on reverse polymerization? Waste to fuel. Uh, waste to fuel. So there is, uh, it so turns out for a complex set of reasons, a lot of the plastic that floats in the ocean ends up in one area. And there's literally mm. acres and acres and acres of this stuff in one part of the Pacific Ocean. And I guess there's a few other sites around the world where this yeah. accumulates probably an anomaly of ocean currents and other complex phenomena. Reusing it is a very good idea. In fact, reusing it is economic. Um, if you have certain things, which is you have recycling of that plastic. Today, we don't do that very effectively. Most parts of the world do it even less than we do. It's a good technology. Will it change the world? No, I don't think so. Is it worth doing? Absolutely. Next question. All right, so a venture capitalist investment in high tech have in the past led to rel relatively quick and easy harvesting through IPOs. What is different in the way that VCs will be harvesting investments in the clean tech sector? Your question's wrong. <laughs> it has never been easy. It's never been quick. We had a few periods when there we had ir irrational exuberance and anybody could go public and 23-year-olds with an internet startup could go public after 18 months. The vast majority of the history of venture capital is you invest in something, it takes three or four years to develop a new silicon chip, probably three or four years to get it adopted, and six or seven years before you can go public, often eight or ten. It's true of chips, biotechnology, even longer, even more dollars. Um, medical devices, very long cycles because you have to go through FDA, FDA approval. Uh, computer systems, long cycles. So most of venture capital has been very much like energy and this fallacy floating around that this is different is just plain wrong. It takes far less money to develop a biofuel company that, than it takes to develop a biotechnology drug. I'm Greg Dalton. My guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is venture capitalist Vined, Vinod Kosla. Next question, please. Hi, my name is Darian Rodriguez-Hayman from Code Green. Uh, my question is, you've raised over a billion dollars around a vision that we can align the interests of the economy and the environment, uh, which is something probably a lot of people here subscribe to. But if you look around the country and even in the state, uh, people are questioning if we can benefit if we can generate jobs and save the polar bears at the same time. So my question is, what do we need to do to help a broader audience understand uh, that it's, it's a false choice to say that it's one or the other, it's either the economy or the environment? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is we don't know if it's a false choice or not. Now, I happen to believe it's a false choice. I happen to believe uh, that doing the right things to be low carbon will generate more jobs. But I can't tell you with certainty that's true. But that's where I'd put my money if I had to bet. But I might bet on red and you might bet on black. I will say what will make that difference is when we prove it. We prove it through role models. 
you know, last Friday, a company in Berkeley, Amherst, that we invested in filed for a public offering. Suddenly, 10 people called me and said, hey, they want to start something like that. Right? People get greedy. That's greed is a great thing. It gets their minds thinking. New ideas pop up. Most of them will fail. But the few that succeed contribute to changing the world, contribute to deploying more capital. There's no question in my mind, if we take the $500 billion, half a trillion dollars we ship into the Mideast every year, and we turned it into renewable oils, fuels, biofuels, batteries, something, renewable electricity generation, we're going to create a much larger economy. But, but, you know, it's hard to say. I do believe role models is the way this will go. You prove it with a few examples, everybody then follows. People don't like to make decisions that are unsafe, for which there's no existence proof, so a few people have to take those bets. And we are taking it, and I think it will be very profitable for us because we are taking those risks. Isn't it also true that incumbent technologies defend their, the, the status quo, whereas the companies you invest in sort of disrupt that status quo? Do you think this transition is going to be more messy than some of the previous transitions? I think the same thing happens in every industry. The incumbent technologies sometimes resist. A few incumbents get smart, move early. In the Internet, Rupert Murdoch at News Corp decided he'd jump in early. He benefited from it, and suddenly all the other incumbents started to jump in. Are there incumbent energy companies you think are smartly moving ahead of the curve? I believe almost all energy companies are now looking at these new options, whether they'll admit it publicly or not, whether they know yet what to do or not, they're paying attention, and that's a great first step. Next question. Hi, thank you. Um, you opened your talk uh, questioning the legitimacy of forecasting, which I th thought was interesting, but curious to tie that in a bit in a period where um, climate science has been politicized. Uh, and, and a lot of climate science is tied towards forecasting, uh, the impact of climate change in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, where water supplies will be and things like that. And wondering if we bring that assumption of questioning forecasting to the climate arena, is there a danger to that the underlying assumption that we are dealing with the issue of climactic change could be questioned or be utilized? You know, it, it, you, you raise an interesting question. What I hear you saying is, if you raise this question of uncertainty, will you hurt the climate? I think more important than helping the climate is being truthful. Okay? And the problem arose because we decided we would bias the outcome, just like I said experts do with their models. So if we aren't truthful about what we know and what we don't know, it's a problem. Uh, I don't think we can predictably say what the temperature change will be because of the increase in carbon. But I think I can say with reasonable probability, probably overwhelming probability, that the risk and the impact-weighted risk of change is large enough where we should be doing something. Just because there's no nuclear attack in this country yet doesn't mean we don't take care of nuclear terrorism. Just because the Russians haven't ever attacked us directly, or the Chinese haven't, doesn't mean we don't have national defense strategies. Those are risks. We spend money. I call it insurance money against those risks. We should be insuring against climate change. The fact is, the skeptic will say there's only a 10% probability these models are right. The believer, like Jim Hansen, will say 80% probability these models are right, or conservative estimates. It doesn't matter. Whether it's 10% or 80%, these are risks we should insure against. If there's a 0.1% probability my house will burn down, I insure against it. We should absolutely be insuring our climate, but it's a business argument of insurance and risk management, not of let's stop questioning climate science. Let's be truthful about that. We come to the end of our program. I'd like to wrap up and just ask you uh, about, you have several uh, college-age uh, college daughters. Um, you call yourself an optimist. Are you an optimist about what kind of world that they will grow up in, your grandchildren will grow up in? No question about it. 
You know, I live much better than my dad, who lived much better than his dad. And my children are already living in a better environment. Um, they can't imagine living without TV and internet and, you know, mobile services and just about everything else. And they'll look pretty archaic about 20 years from now and 50 years from now to their kids. I am an optimist. Technology is a wonderful tool. It can be used for bad, too, and we have to be cautious. Uh, it, but it's just a tool that human beings can use. I think it's a very positive tool. I'm a technology optimist. Thank you, everybody. Thanks to Vanel Kosla. Our thanks to Vinod Kosla, venture capitalist. I'm Greg Dalton, and this, uh, this is the end of the Climate One program. Thank you all for coming.